Welcome to Walker of Worlds podcast. My name's Rachel and this is the podcast where we step behind the veil to take a look at some long-lost and little-known spooky stories and urban legends. This one is inspired by one of my recent trips down memory lane. I found some old negatives and one of them shows myself and two friends standing outside of a pub in London. Not unusual, millions of people have photos of themselves outside of London pubs. But that pub is the Ten Bells on Commercial Street in Spitalfields, London. A pub that has long been rumoured to have been the haunt of Jack the Ripper. Many of the Ripper walking tours end there. Situated on the corner of Commercial Street and Fournier Street, the Ten Bell sits next to Christ Church Spitalfields, an 18th century Anglican church designed by the famed Nicholas Hawksmoor. Directly across the road from the pub is the famous Spitalfields Market, which was established in or around 1666 as a trader's market. It remains as such to this day, hosting traders as well as a food and art market. Originally known as the Eight Bells, the pub received its current name when the nearby church added two more bells, hence the Ten Bells Pub. For many years, the pub had a shabby, run-down look to it with peeling paint, blocked-off windows and a general unkept vibe. But as Spitalfields went through a gentrification programme, so did the pub. The exterior now looks a lot cleaner and there's a little less of the sensation that you're going to get stabbed for looking at someone the wrong way. When I did the Jack the Ripper walk in the late 1990s, guides kept a close eye on younger and female members of the party, just in case. The interior, however, keeps with the pub's history. Enamel tiles decorate the walls and the floor is bare wood, while the bar sits at the heart of the downstairs room. Perfect, it seems, for a cosy drink. Jack the Ripper's connection to the pub is one that is considered particularly strong. It is said that at least two of Jack's victims frequented the establishment before they were killed. In spring 1888, Elizabeth Stride was thrown out of the pub for drunk and disorderly behaviour. Mary Kelly was seen in the pub with a friend on the night of her death. The third one will meet in a while. With such a strong connection to Jack the Ripper, it isn't hard to see why the Ten Bells has become famous for being one of the Ripper's main haunts. But this pub isn't just known for Jack and his gruesome murders. The Ten Bells is also home to several hauntings. So let's meet the ghosts. Since the 1990s, the upper floors of the Ten Bells have been reserved as a living space for pub staff. As you can imagine, the upstairs areas are fairly typical of an 18th century pub. Some areas do look unkept with writing on the walls and old posters peeling away from the plaster, while others have been restored to their Victorian glory. At some point, there have been pop-up restaurants in the rooms over the main pub, and those areas currently appear to be a cocktail bar. Over the years, staff have reported encountering the disturbing apparition of a Victorian-era man. They claim this ghost likes to crawl into bed with them, and when they awaken, he is said to smile at them with blackened teeth and vanishes before they can speak. It is believed this unnerving apparition was a Victorian-era landlord who was murdered by an assailant who was never brought to justice for the crime. (laughs) This ghost has also been spotted in the bar area, leering at female patrons. In due to... June 2000, however, a new landlord took over the pub and decided to clear out the cellar. He found an old metal box hidden away in a corner and, upon opening it, discovered it contained the personal effects of a man named George Roberts. The items dated from the early 1900s and with them was a brown leather wallet inside which was a press cutting of the same period that talked of his having been murdered with an axe in a Swansea cinema. Further research revealed that a man named George Roberts had indeed kept the pub in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and the landlord concluded that it was his ghost whom staff had been encountering. The next ghost is one that is a little, shall we say, disarming and upsetting. The disembodied wails of a baby in great anguish is frequently reported in the pub. Several psychics have been called in to investigate and try to make contact with the ghostly inhabitants of the pub. Supposedly, one psychic refused to enter one of the top rooms of the pub. 
She was unable to explain why, but suggested that something terrible had transpired there, relating to the death of a baby sometime in the 19th century. Years after the psychic incident, a leading Jack the Ripper researcher was allowed to tour the pub. She was also granted rooftop access to the building where she would discover something very unsettling. It was here that she found a sack that had been deposited in a gap between the floor and a water tank. Upon pulling the sack out and opening it, she found it to be filled with mouldy Victorian air baby clothes. On closer inspection, they appeared to have been slashed with a knife. Although not much can be concluded from this find, it is interesting to note that the sack was located directly on top of the room where the psychic refused to enter. This leaves many lingering questions about the possible murder of a baby within the Ten Bells pub. And last but not least, we come to our third and final ghost. As with the previous two, this ghost is another soul that met a tragic and untimely death and who somehow became tied to the fabric of the Ten Bells. Annie Chapman was born Eliza Ann Smith in Paddington on the 25th of September 1840. She was the first of five children born to George Smith and Ruth Chapman. George Smith was a soldier having enlisted in the 2nd Regiment of Lifeguards in December 1834. Reportedly the location of Chapman's earliest years revolved around her father's military service served between London and Windsor. Chapman's parents were not married at the time of her birth although they married on the 22nd of February 1842 in Paddington. Following the birth of their second child in 1844, the family relocated to Knightsbridge, where George Smith became a valet. The family eventually relocated to Berkshire in 1856. According to her brother, Fountain, Annie had first took a drink when she was quite young, quickly developing a weakness for alcohol, and although both he and two of his sisters had persuaded her to sign a pledge to refrain from consuming alcohol, she was tempted and fell despite the over and over efforts of her siblings to dissuade her. On the 1st of May 1869, Annie married John James Chapman, who was related to her mother. The ceremony was conducted at All Saints Church in the Knightsbridge district of London and was witnessed by one of her sisters, Emily, and a colleague of her husband, George White. The Chapman's residence on their marriage certificate is listed as 29 Montpellier Place, Brompton, although the couple are believed to have briefly resided with White and his family in Bayswater. In the years following their marriage, the Chapmans lived at various West London addresses. In the early 1870s, John Chapman obtained employment in the service of a nobleman in Bond Street. Over the years, the couple had three children, Emily Ruth, Annie Georgina and John Alfred. John was born crippled and the family sought help from a London hospital before making the painful decision to place him into an institute for the disabled in Windsor. Sadly, Emily Ruth died of meningitis at the age of 12. Annie and her husband separated by mutual consent in 1884. John Chapman retained custody of their surviving daughter while Annie relocated to London. Her husband was obliged to pay her a weekly allowance of 10 shillings via post office order. The precise reason for the couple's separation is unknown, although a later police report lists the reason for their separation as Annie Chapman's drunken and immoral ways. John Chapman sadly died on the 25th of December 1886. Annie's two surviving children, Annie Georgina and John Albert, were said to have been living with their grandmother according to the 1891 census. Following her separation from her husband, Annie Chapman relocated to Whitechapel, primarily living upon the weekly allowance of 10 shillings from her husband. Over the following year, she resided in common lodging houses in both Whitechapel and Spitalfields. By 1886, she is known to have resided with a man who made wire sieves for a living, consequently becoming known to some acquaintances as Annie Sivery, or Siffy. 
At the end of 1886, her weekly allowance abruptly stopped. Upon inquiring why these weekly payments had suddenly ceased, Chapman discovered her husband had died of alcohol-related causes. Shortly after John Chapman's death, this sieve maker left Chapman, possibly due to the cessation of her allowance, and relocated to Notting Hill. One of Chapman's friends said she became depressed after this separation and seemed to lose her will to live. By May or June 1888, Chapman resided in Crossingham's lodging house at 35 Dorset Street, paying 8D a night for a double bed. According to the lodging house deputy, Timothy Donovan, a 47-year-old bricklayer's labourer named Edward the Pensioner Stanley would typically stay with Chapman at the lodging house between Saturday and Monday, occasionally paying for her bed. She earned some income from crochet work and selling flowers, as well as supplementing it by casual prostitution. Eight days prior to Chapman's death, she had fought with a fellow Crossingham's lodging house resident named Eliza Cooper. The two were reportedly rivals to the affections of a local hawker named Harry, although Cooper later claimed the reason the two had fought had been because Chapman had borrowed a bar of soap from her and after being asked to return it, Chapman had simply thrown a halfpenny upon the kitchen table stating, go get a halfpenny's worth of soap. Later, in a fight between the two at the Britannia Public House, Cooper struck Chapman in the face and chest, resulting in her sustaining a black eye and a bruised breast. On the 7th of September, Amelia Palmer encountered Annie Chapman in Dorset Street. Palmer later informed police Chapman had appeared visibly pale on this occasion, having been discharged from the casual ward of the Whitechapel Infirmary that day. Chapman complained to Palmer of having felt too ill to do anything. After Chapman's death, the coroner who conducted her autopsy noted lungs and brain membranes were in an advanced state of disease which would have killed her within months. According to both the lodging house deputy Timothy Donovan and the watchman John Evans, shortly after midnight on the 8th of September, Chapman had been lacking the required money for her nightly lodging. She drank a pint of beer in the kitchen with fellow lodger Frederick Stevens at approximately 12.10am before informing another lodger that she had earlier visited her sister in Vauxhall and that her family had given her 5D. Stevens then observed Chapman take a box of pills from her pocket. This box then broke, whereupon Chapman wrapped the pills in a section of envelope she had taken from a mantelpiece before leaving the property. At approximately 1.35am, Chapman returned to the lodging house with a baked potato, which she ate before again leaving the premises with the likely intention of earning the money to pay for a bed via prostituting herself. She stated, I won't be long, Brummy. See that Tim keeps the bed for me. Evans last saw Chapman walking in the direction of Spitalfields Market. A Mrs Elizabeth Long testified at the subsequent inquest into Chapman's murder that she had observed Chapman talking with a man at 5.30am. The two had stood just beyond the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. Long described this man as being over 40 years old, slightly taller than Chapman, with dark hair and a foreign, shabby, genteel appearance. He was wearing a a brown, low-crowned felt hat and possibly a dark coat. According to Long, the man had asked Chapman the question, will you, to which Chapman had replied, yes. Long was certain as to Chapman's identity and the time of this sighting as she had heard the chiming of a nearby clock strike the half hour just before she had entered Hanbury Street. If she had indeed seen Chapman, she was likely the last person to see her alive and in the company of her murderer. Shortly before 5am on 8th of September, the son of a resident of 29 Hanbury Street, John Richardson, entered the backyard of the property to check the padlocked cellar in the yard was still intact and to trim a loose piece of leather from his boot. 
Richardson verified the cellar was still padlocked, then sat on the rear steps of the property to trim the loose leather, noting nothing untoward. At approximately 5.15am, a tenant of 27 Hanbury Street named Albert Kadosh entered the yard of the property to use the lavatory. Kadosh later informed the police he had heard a woman say no, no, before hearing the sound of something or someone falling against the fence dividing the backyards of numbers 27 and 29 Hanbury Street. He did not investigate these sounds. Annie Chapman's mutilated body was discovered shortly before 6am by an elderly resident of 29 Hanbury Street named John Davis. Her body was lying on the ground near the doorway to the backyard with her head six inches from the steps of the property. Davis alerted three three men named James Green, James Kent and Henry Holland to his discovery before all three ran down Commercial Street to find a policeman as Davis reported his discovery at the nearest police station. At the corner of Hanbury Street, Green, Kent and Holland found Divisional Inspector Joseph Lunes Chandler and told him another woman has been murdered. Chandler followed the man to Chapman's body before requesting the assistance of police surgeon Dr George Baxter Phillips and more officers. Several policemen arrived within minutes. They were instructed to clear the passageway to the yards to ensure Dr Phillips had access. Phillips arrived at Hanbury Street at approximately 6.30am. Dr Phillips was quickly able to establish a definite link between Chapman's murder and the murder of Marianne Nichols, which had occurred on the 31st of August. Nichols had also suffered two deep slash wounds to the throat inflicted from the left to the right of her neck before her murderer had mutilated her abdomen and a blade of similar size and design had been used in both murders. Phillips also observed six areas of blood splattering upon the wall of the house between the steps and the wooden panellings, dividing 27 and 29 Hanbury Street. Some of these spatterings were 18 inches above the ground. Two pills which Chapman had been prescribed for a lung condition, a section of a torn envelope, a small piece of frayed coarse muslin and a comb were recovered close to her body. A leather apron partially submerged in a dish of water located close to a tap was also discovered close to her body. Contemporary press reports also claim that two farthings were found in the yard of Hanbury Street close to Chapman's body, although no reference is made to these coins in any surviving contemporary police records. The local inspector of the Metropolitan Police Service, Edmund Reed of H Division Whitechapel, was reported as mentioning these coins at an inquest in 1899, and the acting commissioner of the city police, Major Henry Smith, also referenced these coins in his memoirs. Annie Chapman is believed to be seen sitting at the bar of the Ten Bells pub. Many people believe that she had her last drink in this pub before she died, meaning that Jack the Ripper picked up not just one or two but three of his victims from there pub staff say that before she manifests a cold breeze blows through the bar the disappearance of personal belongings and broken glasses have been blamed on the ghost of annie as well as pub staff being pushed downstairs by an unseen hand and that ladies and gentlemen is the tale of the ten bells pub if you want to visit you can find it located at 84 commercial street There are several tube and train stations nearby including Liverpool Street, Aldgate, Aldgate East and Shoreditch High Street. The pub is open seven days a week from midday. If you want to take one of the Jack the Ripper walks there are several available. The one that I did and which I highly recommend is available from walks.com. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. If you like your books a little on the strange side, please feel free to check out our website at www.roswellpublishing.co.uk And until next time, stay spooky. Thank you.